Uh, I just want to dedicate our Divrei Torah this morning to a sponsorship that was sent in by Cindy and Avi Schreier, Le'iloi Nishmas, Esther, Tehila, Bas, Gavriel, Pinchas, as well as Le'iloi Nishmas, Chaya, Rachel, Bas, Eliezer, whose yard site is the 10th day of Adar, that is their grandmother, as well as Maxine Sullivan, their grandmother, great-grandmother, uh, whose yard site is on the 14th day of Adar, Gittel, Mindel, Bas, Avraham, and all of them should have an Eli Hanashama from our Divrei Torah this morning. I was asked to make mention as well that uh, Ritz is having a day of learning in the Sheraton Meadowlands on March 12th. I know that that's not so close to where we live. However, on a Sunday, I think it's probably not as far as it would be on another day. And they are having a special women's program from 12 to 4.30 in the afternoon. I'm going to be one of the speakers, but they're going to be having a number of really wonderful speakers. Nechama Price is speaking, and Rafael Besser, and Rabbi Yaakov Neubiger, Rabbi J.J. Schachter, and Dina Rabinovich. Many other really great speakers are going to be there. So if any of the males in your family want to take part in the men's program, and the females want to take part in the women's program, it's going to be an entire day of learning, really a wonderful opportunity uh, to prepare for Pesach together in that way. Unfortunately, here we are right before Purim, and when we talk about the old story of Haman HaRasha, Bikesh LaHashmid, LaHarogu LaAbeid, we realize that this is not something that is only a story that we talk about, but it's something that unfortunately we are reminded of every single day. And the Haman of many thousands of years ago is no different than the Haman of today. So I thought that this was an opportunity to talk a little bit about it and to address the point that I think, or I hope, should be on all of our minds when we have... A terror attack, it is always a horror, it is always something that evokes a very sensitive emotion in all of us, but certainly I would say that when you see two young brothers being killed and then only a week later two older brothers being killed and the visions of that are something that really are, are very, very difficult to understand and very difficult to make sense of. So that's what I want to talk about today. We're living through a time of tremendous anti-Semitism not only in Israel, uh, with the terrorism that we've seen and the violence that's going on and the hateful intimidation, but also here in the United States, as we know, this past Shabbos, there was a major threat that was going around, and some say it was real and some say it was fake. I have no idea how to determine what is real and what is fake. What I do know is there were many, many Jewish communities who were on edge and who were very concerned. I know that I got many shilas from Rabbanim across the country asking if they're allowed to uh, carry their phones on Shabbos? What if something happens while they're in the middle of shul? Can they make a phone call in the middle of shul? Which is not really a shiloh, of course you're allowed to, but something that we're just not used to thinking about living here in the United States and thinking that we are all free. So this is something that is on many, many of our minds, and I think it's an opportunity for us to think about it. But I, I don't like to be a negative person, and I would much rather think positively, as I always try to do, and I think this should be no exception. Now, how can you think positively about such a negative subject? So, I do believe that it's an opportunity for us to think about what it means to be targeted. What does it mean to be singled out? And let's think to ourselves, who was the first person, who was the first entity to single out the Jewish people? It was not our enemies. It was not those who hate us. It was the one who loves us more than anyone else. It was HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. And what I've spent this opportunity that we're going through now talking to my children about is not that we should be afraid to be Jews and not that we should be shamed to be Jews and not that we should be living lives of fear, but rather that it's an opportunity for us to realize if we're being targeted by our enemies, maybe it's a time to think about when was the first time that we were targeted and singled out? And that was by HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. 
What exactly does that mean? That the Ribbon Shalom set us apart from all the others. So we know by the occasion of Kabbalah Satorah, Kodesh Baruch Hu singled us out and said that we are going to be referred to as the Am Segula, as the Am Hanivchar, and this is something that we recognize with pride and with satisfaction. It's something that we are very content with, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has set us apart. It's what we say every morning in our Birch HaSatorah. Asher b'charbanu mikol ha'amim v'nasan lanu estarasa. We thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for being bocher banu mikol ha'amim. That means he's singling us out. He's making us different. He made us unique and he wants us to live differently. Baruch Hu Elokeinu Shebrana Lechvoda. We say it in Uvalutzion every day. In Aleinu, three times a day in our tefillah. Aleinu l'shabeach l'adon akol. We feel grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Why? Because he chose not to make us like the rest of the nations in the world, and he wants us to be different, and he wants us to live a different kind of lifestyle. And it's something that we are proud of. So let's try to understand what exactly does it mean to be the Yam HaNivchar. The first time that we are introduced to this concept, to this idea of being the Yam HaNivchar is when the Torah on the occasion of Kabbalah Satorah explains, V'atem tiyun li mamleches ko'anim v'goy kadosh that you are going to serve for me as a mamleches koanim v'gai kadosh, as a holy nation, as a people who are going to be distinct and different. Now what exactly does that mean? How can I serve as a mamleches koanim v'gai kadosh? And while I'm on Parshas Yisro and talking about Kabbalah Satorah, I need to thank your husband, really, for sending me that amazing sefer that he did. I never heard of it, I never saw it, and I forgot to call him this week, but I, I hope to do so. It was a, a ta'anig, ta'anug ruchani. I really had a, a wonderful Shabbos going through the Sefer that he sent, and uh, I really wanted to thank him. So in abstention, please do so, and I hope to give him a call as well. But back to the story before I forget. I just have to be grateful to him. So by Kabbalah Satorah, the Torah tells us that was not a hint that any of your husbands or family members should buy me Sfarim. I have everything I need. What happened was uh, the Rebetzin was here last week and uh, listening to the Shir, or two weeks ago, and we were talking about Torah Shabbat Shabbat, Torah Shabbat Peh, and her husband, who is a great Talmud Chacham, sent me a wonderful addendum to everything that I had spoken about. And an addendum is not the right word. It's, it's a, an amazing safer that has so much more than anything I ever imagined speaking about. So I'm really, really grateful to him for sending me that. So the Torah says we have an expectation that we are all supposed to be a mamleches ko'anim v'goy kadosh. Now what exactly does it mean to be a mamleches ko'anim? My father is not a kohen. I'm not from a family of kohanim. So how am I able in my life to be a Kohen? What exactly does that mean? That, of course, some of us in the room may be from a family of Kohanim, and maybe that's why you're laughing. So maybe this point does not refer to you. But for the rest of us, simple Jews here in the room, what exactly does it mean that the expectation and the aspiration of all of us is that we should be a Mamleches Kohanim v'goy kadosh? The way I understand it is as follows. The Gemara in Maseches Kiddushin has a discussion. What exactly is the role of a Kohen in the time of Ebeis HaMikdash? So we know that the Kohen is supposed to be dedicating his service to the Beis Amigdash. Now the Gemara says, what exactly does that mean? Does it mean that he serves as the Shtucha Didan? Is the Kohen the representative of the people? Or is the Kohen the Shtucha Derachmana? Or is he the representative of God? Is he the one that unites HaKadosh Baruch Hu with the people? Or is he the one that unites the people with HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Either way, whichever way you understand it, whether he is our shaliach, whether he is the shaliach of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, whichever way you look at it, the job of a coin in the times of a Beis Amigdash, which is the utopian society of Jewish life, the job of a coin is supposed to be to serve as a bridge, to serve as a connection between 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and the Jewish people. Most people in the world go out to work and don't have the ability to be focused on spiritual matters all day. So yes, we daven shacharis, we daven mincha, we daven mara, we have reminders built in. Along the way, we say brachas whenever we eat. We do different things, but for the most part, our focus is not going to be solely on HaKadosh Baruch Hu the entire day. We have a faction of the Jewish people, the Chelak HaKohanim, the Shevet HaKohanim, that are going to be single-minded. They're going to be singularly focused on service to HaKadosh Baruch Hu their entire lives. Even though they're only going to work in the Beis Amigdash one or two weeks a year, when you split up all the Kohanim in the Jewish people, they're not all going to show up every day. The Gemara says there were Mishmaros, there was a base Av, there was a system, how they, how they split it up, how many Kohanim got to come on Sunday, and how many came next week on Sunday, and how many... They figured it out, there was a system. It's not that everyone stormed the Beis Amigdash every day and tried to fight over the, the Avoda. That's not what happened. But being that as it may, the job of the Kohanim, even the rest of the 50 weeks a year that they were not working in the Beis Amigdash was that we as the Jewish people should support them and they should be the ones who are singularly focused on being involved in spiritual matters at all times. And their job then is to connect that reality to the people. So what is our job as the Mamlechas Kohanim V'goy Kadosh? It's exactly that. To serve as the bridge to a world that doesn't have an appreciation for what it means to be involved in spiritual matters. For a world where people think that everything revolves around themselves. Rabbi Feiner loves to talk about the I generation, and he says it a million times better than I'll ever dream of saying it, but he loves to talk about the iPhone and the iPad and everything's the I me and the I this. And it's not a coincidence. It is all about the I. It is all about me. It's about my satisfaction and my pleasure and what can I get out of this and a lack of appreciation that there's something much larger than myself in this world. There's an entity that's much greater than I am. There's a purpose, there's a mission, there's a vision here. And so many people live life without having any of that. And that really is our job. As the Mamlechas Kohanim, the Goy Kadosh, to show others that there's something special to living life and experiencing it in this world. And there's something greater, there's a higher purpose that we have the ability to tap into. What it means when we talk about being an Orla Goyim. So we throw around this term, and we know the conservative and reform love talking about being the light unto the nations. They're not the ones who made it up. It's the Navi Yeshaya who describes the Jewish people as the Orla Goyim. That is the aspiration of the Jewish people, to serve as the Orla Goyim. So what are we supposed to do in our mission, in our role as the Orla Goyim? Do we go out into the streets and teach the world about Taras HaMishpacha? No. It's not relevant to them. It's hard enough to keep Taras HaMishpacha for ourselves. We don't need to share that with others. Do we go out onto the streets and teach others about Shabbos? Of course not. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Akum Shabbos, Misa. Shabbos is not an experience that's supposed to be shared with other nations of the world. So what is it that we're supposed to be doing as the Or Lagoyim, as the light onto the nations? I thought about this a lot till I got smart and I look back in the Pasuk itself to see how does the Navi Yeshaya, when he talks about this aspiration of being an Arla Gayim, how does he describe what that's supposed to mean? Let me read you his words. What it means to be an Arla Gayim, the Navi says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells the Navi that he created us, and the condition was that we were going to serve as an Arla Gayim. Next words in the Pasuk, 
Lifkoach enayim ivros. Your job as the Arla Goyim is to serve in a role, in a position where you have the ability to illuminate the lives of others, to give perspective, to enlighten others, to realize that there's something greater than themselves and the experience of life that they're going through. That's what it means to be the Arla Goyim. We don't go out into the streets and teach Shabbos and Kashros and Taras HaMeshpacha. It's not relevant to everyone else. What is relevant to them is that I find my life to be purposeful, that I find my life to be meaningful, that I find my life to be valuable, that there's something special in the experiences of life that I go through and that I live through every single moment and every day of life, that there's purpose and mission and meaning in everything. And based on that, we have the opportunity to go out and talk about that purpose and that vision that we all share in the lives that we live as Jews. That's what it means to be the Erla Goyim. So when I talk to my children about what's been going on in the world, the way I frame it is, it's not that we're being targeted and this is something new. It's that it's just reminding us that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the first one who singled us out. Let's use it as an opportunity to talk to our children about V'chaye Olam Nata B'Sochenu. Let's talk to our children, to our grandchildren about what it means. Baruch Hu Elokeinu Shebrana Lechvodo. Do you realize that HaKadosh Baruch Hu singled you out? What does that mean to you? Why should you be a Jew as we spoke about last week? Is there anything special about being a Jew? I met with a number of younger members of our community last night. Uh, we had a women's chabura, young women's chabura. And I was talking about some of these themes and I just said it's very hard to impress this upon our children when they see that we don't find purpose and vision and meaning in the lives that we live as Jews either. So you can't be disappointed when your child comes home and says, I hate Shabbos. We had a discussion last night. Somebody said in the middle, my six-year-old comes home every week and says, I hate Shabbos, I hate Shabbos. I said, well, what does your Shabbos look like for you as an adult? I'm sorry to be disrespectful, but let's put the question back. Why should your child like Shabbos? He says, you know, to be honest, my husband comes home after Shabbos starts. He's a doctor, but still, he comes home after Shabbos starts. And here I am with my kids. I'm not going to give away any details. But here I am, getting all the kids ready, trying to cook the food, doing everything. I'm totally stressed out. I hate Shabbos myself. So I said, so you're shocked that your children hate Shabbos? I don't know what the answer is. You have to make an accommodation for yourself. You have to figure it out. But... That's not showing your kid that I'm so blessed to be a Jew, that I feel so proud to be a part of the experience of Shabbos. And what do you think that child is going to do as they grow older? How do you think that's going to pan out? What do you think Shabbos is going to look like in their home and for their children? So it's an opportunity for us, although I know it comes from a very unfortunate source and it's something that gives us pause to maybe think in a positive sense, what does it mean to be a Jew for me? Why am I proud to do this? Why is this something that's valuable to me? Why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu single me out? What is the aspiration of living a Jewish life? And it's complicated. It's complicated because, as we mentioned, we're all living in the world and we're all trying to balance what we spoke about last week, the Ger V'toshav, at the same time that we try to be a resident and we try to be ones who are participating fully and engaging in all that goes on in the world. We also have, on the other hand, the expectation that we're going to remain different. Avram Avinu is referred to as Avraham. Why? Because he was called Av Hamon Goyim. He's the father of all nations. He's cosmopolitan. He's universal. He's there for everyone. But at the same time, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told him, I want you to perform a bris milah. Why? Because you need to strike that balance. You need to always hold the line. You need to hold that tension of making sure that at the same time that you're the Av Hamon Goyim, you are also one who has a bris milah and separates yourself to realize that you're going to be different. My father likes to say, 
uh, in the name of Rav Salavechik, a very beautiful insight. We say in Hallel, and we just uh, mentioned Hallel last week when we bench Rosh Chodesh, we say in Hallel, Ani amarti v'chavzi kal ha'adam kozev. What does it mean, kal ha'adam kozev? If you translate those words, it means every man is a liar. I don't know about you, I'm a pretty positive person. I don't like to look at people and be suspicious. Yes, I was on the subway yesterday and I was terrified. But other places, um, I usually just, just like to engage people. On the Long Island Railroad, somebody always talks to me when I sit down. I don't know why. Am I the guy who has something on my forehead that says, please talk to me? I don't know. Maybe it's just because they try with others and everyone ignores them. I'm the only one who actually responds. So... What does it mean, kala adam kozev? Do you really go about life believing that everyone is a liar? That nobody is telling the truth? That you can't trust other people you engage with? I don't believe that. I don't feel that way. So what exactly do we mean when we say kala adam kozev? What it means is as follows. Rav Salavechik explained, perhaps, what David HaMelech is getting at is the following. It's not that every man is a liar. Of course we believe that there are, most people in the world are probably telling the truth. And there are some people along the way who don't, who get caught up in lies and who are living a dishonest lifestyle. But that's not what he's talking about. That's not at all what David HaMelech is referring to. What he's referring to is the following. The Pasuk tells us, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created Adam Arishon Afar Min HaAdama. Adam Arishon was created from the Adama. And we know that whenever you're learning Chumash, if there's a hey at the beginning of the word, it's to highlight something that's very unique, that's very special, that's very different. So the Medrash wonders, what does it mean, Afar Min HaAdama? What's unique, what's special about that Adama? Medrash gives two interpretations. Number one says the Medrash, HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Afar Min HaAdama. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took it from the Adama. What is the Adama? The Adama is the ground from Har Maria, the most sacred and holy ground to the Jewish people. That's where the dust was taken to create Adam Rishon from. That's where he was infused with life. That's the first interpretation. The Medrash then says, perhaps it means something else as well. Afar min ha'adama means HaKadosh Baruch Hu was tzavar afaro mikol ruchos ha'adama. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took a little sampling of earth from all over, the, all over the globe, put it all together, and from that, he infused Adam Arishan with life. Okay, sounds interesting. Salavechik said, this is not a contradiction. It's not a dispute. They were agreeing to the same point. But they're both saying that man is very complex in the way he was made up. We both have both aspects of these inside of ourselves. We all have an innate connection to the Harabayas, to the Haramariya, to that Afar Minha Adama, to the holiest, most sacred ground that we all feel connected to intrinsically, inherently. It's part of who we are. At the same time, we all were created with this ability to be out there. We call Rufa Sa'adama. You ever wonder, why is it when you pick up the newspaper, if you ever do, and you read something that's going on in Bangladesh, Why does it bother you? What do you care? Do you know anybody who lives in Bangladesh? Will you ever know anybody who lives there? No. Why does it bother you when you see things are going on at other corners of the globe that have no connection to you at all? We're just such curious people. We're so nosy. Everything matters to us. The answer is no. That's the way we were created. It's part of who we are. We were all taken Afar Minha Adama, Kaddish Baruch, who took us Mikol Ruchos Adama, and from that he created man. But the problem with that is that we have an inner conflict, an inner schism that runs through us at all times. That on the one hand, we feel we're so closely connected and invested in the Afar Minha Adama of the Harabayas. At the same time, 
We feel that we're all over the place, that we're involved in all that goes on in the world, and it's very hard to strike that balance. And that's what David HaMelech says. Every man, not as a liar, not as dishonest, but rather, every man is conflicted. Every human being has this inner struggle to always fight and, and try to strike that balance between being that Afra Minha Adama that's always connected to the Harabais and the Afra Minha Adama that is Mikal Ruchas Adama and understanding that those are not always going to be the same values. And sometimes they're going to be conflicting one another and we have to figure out how to deal with that and how to live as a Jew having both of these as a part of our genetic makeup. So that is so much of what is important to us to think about as we live life as Jews. But at the same time, we cannot ignore the fact, as beautiful as it is to be the Amman Nivchar, we cannot ignore the fact that that comes with a tremendous price tag. We cannot ignore the fact that, unfortunately, we do know there is so much that's been going on around us, not only here in the United States, but of course in Eretz Yisrael and around the world, that makes us be reminded that anti-Semitism, that Haman HaRasha is alive and well. And when we're going to read the Shabbos, the Parsha of Mechias Amalek, let us remind ourselves this is not a story from thousands of years ago. This is a story that continues to evolve. I think the one who said it best in describing what anti-Semitism is all about was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And from all the books I've read, I think I've seen this paragraph in every single one of them um, because it's something that I think was very beautifully formulated where he describes what anti-Semitism is like. And he says the following, anti-Semitism is not a unitary phenomenon. It is not a coherent belief or ideology. Jews have been hated because they were rich and Jews have been hated because they were poor. Jews have been hated because they were capitalists and Jews have been hated because they were communists. Jews have been hated because they believed in tradition and Jews have been hated because they were rootless, rootless cosmopolitans. Jews have been hated because they kept to themselves and they have also been hated because they penetrated everywhere. Anti-Semitism is not a belief, but rather a virus. The human body has an immensely sophisticated immune system which develops defenses against viruses. It is penetrated, however, because viruses mutate. And anti-Semitism continues to mutate. That's what we see. Anti-Semitism in every generation continues to mutate and has many different faces and is never going to be the same. In fact, in Parshas Vayishlach, which is the first time that Yaakov Avinu engages his sadistic adversary, the Sarah Shalesav. So as we know, they're having they have this battle the whole night and they're going back and forth. And finally in the end, when it's almost over, Yaakov Avinu says, Can you please tell me your name? To which the Sarah Shalesav responds, How strange that you ask me my name. Now, we've read these psukim many times. But do you ever wonder? Why is it strange for Yaakov Avinu to ask the name of who it is that he's engaging with in battle? That would be the natural thing to do. If I spent the entire evening talking to anybody, I would hope that they would have the courtesy to tell me who they are, let alone if I was fighting with someone. Tell me who you are, who am I fighting with? So why is Yaakov Avinu ignored in his request when he says, Hagida Nashemecha? The response is not, God told me I am not allowed to share my identity. All he says is, Lama Zetishalishmi, why are you asking my name? I think it would be the obvious thing for any of us to do, to ask a name of somebody who we've been so engaged with. Rav Salavechik explains, Yaakov Avinu was not asking, what is your name, can you identify yourself? But rather, what he was asking was, 
Can you identify who you represent? You represent anti-Semitism. You represent evil against the Jewish people. And I want to be able to warn my children how to properly strategize, how to prepare themselves to combat against you. Can you tell me what is your essence? Hagida nashemecha. So that we can properly be prepared in future generations. To which the Sarah Shalesev responds, What is it going to help if you get my name? In every generation is going to continue to mutate. It's going to be a different form. It's not always going to remain the same. Anti-Semitism in some generations comes in the form of Romans, sometimes in the form of Greeks, sometimes it's Haman, and sometimes it's Yavan, sometimes it's Hanukkah, sometimes it's Purim, sometimes it's socialism and communism, sometimes it's Nazism, sometimes it's terrorism. And we watch in awe how this continues to strike the Jewish people in so many different ways, and it mutates in every generation. And what the Sarah Shalesa was telling Yaakov Avinu was, how can you possibly prepare yourself if this is going to be something that is going to have a new face in every subsequent generation? It is never going to remain the same. That's the nature of what anti-Semitism is really all about. There's an amazing Gemara Masechus Megillah, where the Gemara talks about the story of Haman and Achashverosh. And I would venture to say, many of us have a mistaken impression when we read the Megillah story, we say to ourselves, you know, Haman was the one, Bikesh lahashmid laharogu laabed. Haman wanted to destroy the Jewish people. He was the one who was evil. Achashverosh seems to be someone who's just calmly going along with the plan, not really stopping it, but not really involved. That's what it seems. But the Gemara says, no, Haman and Achashverosh were both in cahoots together. They loved each other. They devised the plan together. They both equally wanted to destroy the Jewish people. They had an equal venom toward the Jewish people. It's not the impression we get when we read the Megillah, but when you read between the lines, you understand that that's what's going on. And the Gemara says, in order to fully appreciate the role that Haman and Achashverosh played in trying to destroy the Jewish people, the Gemara gives us the following mashal. Now, when do we give a mashal? We give a mashal when there's something that we don't understand, and then you get a parable that makes you be able to understand it better, more clearly. So here, obviously, the Gemara is trying to explain it a little bit more clearly, but you're more confused when you're done with the parable than you were before you started. So we have Haman and Achashverosh. Says the Gemara, let's try to understand their hatred toward the Jewish people. The Gemara tells us the following mashal. Mashal abal hatel ubal hafaritz. There were two neighbors who lived next door to each other. They had a wonderful relationship with one another. One day they bump into each other in the supermarket and they each start complaining. Each one is quetching about his problems. One says, you know, I have this wonderful field and I would love to do business in the field. The problem is I can't get any business done here because I have a huge mound in the middle of the field and therefore any of the instruments that are going to go trying to plow the field are not going to be able to get through this mound. But in order to get rid of the mound of dirt, I'm going to have to pay an exorbitant amount of money. It's almost not worth it. His neighbor says, you know, it's funny you mention that because I was about to tell you I have the opposite problem in my field. I have a field and I'm not able to do any work. I can't make any money because I have a huge ditch. I have a hole in the middle of the ground, in the middle of the field. And as a result of that, I can't do anything. No one's able to do any work. And if I were to pay to have a crew come in and fill it with dirt, it would cost me so much money, it almost wouldn't be worth it. You know, it's so nice that we met each other today. I have a great idea. Instead of me paying to get rid of my dirt and you paying to fill the hole, why don't you come every day 
just take a little bit of dirt and over time, both of us will be happy. The mound will be gone from my field, the ditch will be gone from your field, and everything will be great. Sounds like a plan, they shake hands. The Gemara says, and this now helps us to understand the relationship between Haman and Ahasuerus. End of story. Got it? Right. So I've read this Gemara many times, never understood it, but I moved on. You read many Gemaras that you don't understand, and you say, it's an Agatha Gemara, we're not exactly sure what it means, and sometimes you just move on and hope that at some point maybe you'll understand it. One year before Purim, Rav Asher Weiss was here, he passed by, I was learning the Gemara Megillah, and he says, oh, you know, what do you say about that Gemara? What does the Gemara mean? So I said, I have no idea. So he shared with me an amazing perspective that I think is really, you have to understand history to fully appreciate the perspective. I saw subsequently in the Sefer, they quote this from the Chassam Sofer. I don't know if he really said it, he didn't say it, it doesn't make a difference. It's an amazing shot. What he said is as follows. What is it referring to? It means in subsequent generations, anti-Semitism continues to change. There were some generations where they hated the Jewish people because they were so powerful. Have you seen the trope? The Jews run the media and the Jews run finances in the United States and the Jews are involved in every decision-making process that happens in the United States government. Of course, don't you know? Right? Halavai, we'd even be able to make a meeting with a, uh, with a politician to get ourselves heard. But this is the way people feel. This is the way people feel. That there are generations where they say the Jews are just so powerful, they're all over the place. Look at the story in Mitzrayim. There was a concern, Pen Yirbe. There was a concern that the Jewish people are growing in influence. They're going to kick us out of our own land because the Jews are just becoming all too powerful. There were some generations where they hated Jews for the opposite reason. In Nazi Germany, they said that Jews were subhuman beings, didn't have a right to live because the human race doesn't deserve to have such a disgusting people like this who don't even know how to behave like human beings? All of those come to the same point. They all hate the Jews. And they're all coming up with reasons and excuses why they hate them. But in the end of the day, the Baal HaTel and the Baal HaCharitz, there were times when they hated the Jews because they were like a big mound in the middle of the field, couldn't get out of their way. There were other times where they said it's like a Baal HaCharitz. The Jews are subhuman beings. They're a big ditch in society. We don't know how to get rid of them. But both of them, come from the same place. And they shake hands in the supermarket and they say, we both hate the Jews equally. That was Haman and Ahasuerus. And that is summing up all of Jewish history and what we have faced as a people throughout all the different millennia, all the different generations as Jews. When we say the Alanisim on Hanukkah as well as on Purim, we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the Nisim, for the Niflos, for all the great miracles, for all the amazing things that we've experienced as a people over all the generations. But then we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu Al HaMelchamos. We thank Him for the wars that we have fought. We are not a bloodthirsty people. Let us make it clear. We don't like bloodshed. This is not something that we support at all. When there's hostility and there's developing war, it's not something that the Jewish people are comfortable with. So why do we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for the Melchamos? What exactly does that mean? It is not a reference to thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for a battle, but rather thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving us the stamina, the fortitude, the ability to remain strong as a people. 
After so many generations, we talk about it Purim, we talk about it Pesach, and yet we're still here, and yet we still want to go on this fight, and we still want to educate our children to be a part of this religion. Why? Who would ever want this? Get your children to run, to run away from this as fast as they can. But yet we're still standing strong and we're proud of it. And that is what we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for Al HaMilchamos on Hanukkah and Purim. We thank the Rebona Shalom for giving us the strength and the stamina and the bravery and the courage, the perseverance to stand up strong to who we are and what we believe in. In fact, there's an amazing Pasuk in Parshas Kisisa. We lay it on a Tanis Tibar on a public fast day. The Torah says, Vayomer, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I want the Jewish people to know I'm about to perform an amazing miracle. The world has never experienced such a thing. says, After you see this miracle, you'll know that God is with you. Now the Ramban and all the other Mepharshim on Chumash say, What is this Pasuk talking about? What did HaKadosh Baruch Hu do that has proven to be a greater miracle than anything that we've experienced before? After all, you're talking to the Jewish people who just experienced Kriyas Yamsev, Kabbalah Satorah, they just experienced all the Yasser Makos. They've seen it all. What has HaKadosh Baruch Hu done? That you will see, once you experience this miracle that has never been experienced before, you will see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the supreme leader of the Jewish people. What is that a reference to? All the Mepharshim on Chumash are bothered with this question. And perhaps the Chavis Halavava suggests, perhaps what it means is as follows. If we living today would like to see and experience, I wish HaKadosh Baruch Hu would come and do Kriyas Yamsuf in front of my eyes. It would make life much easier for me. I think it would make life easier for all of us if we would have that kind of revelation. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu would come to Harsinai and say, you know, this is what I want you to do. If he would talk to me directly, if he would show me the Eser Makos, I would have a much easier time doing all the things that a Jew has a hard time doing. Because I would see HaKadosh Baruch Hu I would see him intimately. It wouldn't be a doubt in my mind. Says the Chavos HaLavavos. If a person wants in this generation, Liros, to see, something that is somewhat similar to those experiences of Kriyas Yamsuf. Let's be honest and let's look with an honest eye. Let us look at the fact that we are standing all these years later. How is it that we are here? We stand up strong and we say proudly that we do not stand for all of the values that all the Yuma Sa'olam stand for. We live in host countries and we stand up proudly and we say, we are not a part of this society. We are not a part of this culture. We have no shame in saying that. We're proud to say that. And yet we're still here. How can that be? There has never been a miracle as profound as that. We are the miracle. The Jewish people are the greatest expression of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's miracle. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised us, it's true. Look, here we are. And that is the greatest miracle. The world has never seen a miracle the likes 
of what it is that we as a nation, that we as a people have been experiencing and have lived through and continue to experience. That's what we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for Al Hamel Chamos. We thank you for allowing us to continue to fight for the values of what it means to be a Jew. And that's something that we are extremely proud to fight for. A number of years ago, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau was here for a Shabbos in, uh, in Young Yisrael Lawrence Cedarhurst. And Matzai Shabbos, they had arranged for him to speak for all the Rabbanim of the community and their wives. And we had a wonderful Malava Malka that was planned. Unfortunately, over that Shabbos was the shooting in the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And when he came to the Malava Malka, that's when they informed him of what had happened. And he said, he was so shaken up. And he said, you know, my whole life I've been fighting against anti-Semitism. I've been fighting against all the messages of the Holocaust. Never in a million years did I think I would be in the United States. And the Shabbos that I was here, this is going to happen in a shul no less. And he said, whatever I was going to talk about is irrelevant. What we need to talk about now is in Yana Diyama. If you've ever heard Rabbi Lau speak, he's a phenomenal speaker, really unbelievable and um, extremely animated. And he spent the next 45 minutes talking about what was on his mind. All he said was one medrash. It took him 45 minutes to say. But what I took out of it was the medrash. I didn't take out the 45 minutes. So what I'm going to share with you is that unbelievably powerful medrash that he shared with us then. What he said was the medrash goes through a discussion of all the premeditated murderers throughout Chazal, throughout Tanakh. And it compares each one of them to the other. So the Medrash begins. Who was the first murderer in the pages of Tanakh? Cain. Cain was the first murderer in the pages of Tanakh. Why did Cain murder his brother? What was his problem with his brother Hevel? Competition. So Cain was unhappy that he has competition. Cain was unhappy that he has a brother Hevel who's also serving on Kaddish Baruch Hu. Hevel brings a carbon. Cain brings a carbon. Hevel's is accepted. Mine is not. And therefore Cain decides, well, how am I going to get rid of competition? One easy way to do that, let me just kill him. And that's what he does. Problem is, Cain made a miscalculation. Cain didn't think it through carefully enough. Why? Along comes Esav, and he says, Shota haya Cain. Cain was a fool, because Cain did not factor in the following. He didn't realize that so long as his parents are alive, they can still have another child. And if they have another child, my competition is back. Which is exactly what happened. Cain kills Hevel. Adam and Chava have another child. What do they name him? Shes. Torah says they name him Shes. Kishas li Elokim zera acher tachas Hevel b'ni. The reason why we name him Shes is because he takes the place of our child Hevel, who has just been killed. And now Cain's back to his problem. So that didn't make sense. Along comes Esav and he says, "You know, I hate the Jewish people." I hate my brother Yaakov. Let me figure out what I'm going to do to him. Let me kill him. But let me look back in history. There was a brother before who also hated his brother. Cain hated Hevel. And he decided to kill him, but it didn't work out because then he had another brother in the way. So you know what? Let me wait until my father dies and then I'll kill Yaakov. Why? If I wait until my father dies, then I'm not going to have the same problem that Cain had. My father can't have another child. So he waits and he waits. And what he didn't calculate was the following problem. It's very nice that you waited. But all that time that you were waiting, Yaakov Avinu got married, had his own children, who then in turn had their own children. His family ended up being so large that you couldn't kill them at the time that you were ready to do so. So that was a mistake. And along comes Paro and he says, Shote Hayakayan. 
They both got it wrong. They both made a miscalculation. Because look, the Jewish people are still here. What was the mistake of Esav? The mistake was he waited around too long. He waited around too long. Yaakov Avinu had his own family, and they grew to be so large, it was impossible to destroy them. That's why Paro says, I'm not going to make the same mistake as they made. The moment a Jewish child is born, I'm going to kill him immediately. Now, why was he not concerned about the women? Because even if the women are going to be kept alive, well, they'll intermarry. And they'll become Egyptians. Nothing to be concerned about. Well, guess what? We go through Sheba and Mitzrayim and here we are. We're still here. Along comes Haman and he says, I have the same problem with the Jewish people that all those who came before me had. And let's learn from all of their mistakes. They all were wrong. So where did Paro go wrong? You know, we say in the Megillah, Vidaseim shonos mikol am. Which simply translated, it means Haman was complaining to Ahasuerus that the Jewish people run by their own set of rules. They have Shabbos when they want. They have Yom Tif when they want. You know, they show up in the office on a Tuesday afternoon. They tell me it's Purim today. Really? Come on. Whoever heard of this? You're not allowed to work on Purim. You're telling me tonight is Pesach. These Jews run by their own rules. That's what the simple understanding of the Pesach means. But perhaps it also means Daseim Shonos Mikalam. There is one Jewish law that is totally different than all other nations of the world. How do we determine whether a child is going to be a Jew or not? by the mother and not by the father. And therefore, Haman says, that was Paro's mistake. Paro allowed the women to stay alive. The problem in doing so was that Paro did not calculate that if they're going to intermarry and they'll have children, those children will still be Jewish children. And you have not rid the world of the Jewish problem. And therefore, Haman says, I'm not going to make the mistake of all those who came before me. Let us not wait around until the Jewish people become larger. Let us not keep the women alive. Let us make sure that we eradicate the world of the Jewish problem once and for all. But we're still here. But we're still here. And the Medrash then finally ends off by saying, the last fight, the last struggle of the Jewish people is going to be Melchemes Gogumago. Not clear exactly what it is, what it's not, but Melchemes Gogumago, what is it all about? If you look in the second parak in Tehillim, the Mepharshim say that that's really what Melchemes Gogumago is a description of. Melchemes Gogumago, they come along and they say, all those who came before us hated the Jewish people, but they were unsuccessful in destroying them. We have to learn from their mistakes. Something obviously went wrong. And they come up with the mistake. What was wrong? The problem was that so long as the Jewish people have a connection to Aviyam Shabashamayim, he's not going to allow for them to be destroyed. What we need to do is destroy the connection between the Jewish people and their Father in Heaven. And then we'll be able to destroy them. Which you look in the second parak of Tehillim. This is what it means when the Pasuk says, Ninatka Esmos Rosemo. We will cut the cables, we will cut the cords that connect the Jewish people to Aviyam Shabashamayim. We're going to throw the cords away because there's no longer going to be any connection that binds the Jewish people to Aviyam Shabashamayim. That is the final plot against the Jewish people, that's the final solution. 
what is the next Pasuk in the Tehillim? Yoshev Bashamayim Yitzchak, Hashem Yilag Lamo. HaKadosh Baruch Hu in heaven laughs and he says that is an impossibility. That will never happen. Our connection with Avinu Shabashamayim is one which is strong. It's one which needs to remain strong, but it's our responsibility to make sure that our children understand and appreciate how strong that connection needs to be and what it needs to represent for all of us. I, I quoted from Rabbi Sachs before. I'm going to quote one more thing from him. He quotes something from the Ger Rebbe, and it's something which I find so powerful. He writes, My grandparents were not born in this country. Many, even most of the Jews in Great Britain, had grandparents who came here in the great wave of immigration from Eastern Europe between 1880 and 1914. We are Anglo-Jews of the third generation. It is an almost universal law that inherited wealth only lasts three generations and not more. The same applies to inherited Judaism. Ours is the last generation that can still remember a Baba and a Zeta from the Altaheim with their fluent Yiddish and their undiminished Yiddishkeit. Ours is the last generation for whom Jewish identity can be sustained by memory alone. The Ger Rebbe once pointed out that the four sons of the Haggadah represent these four generations. The wise son, the Chacham that we talk about, is the immigrant generation who still lives the traditions of the Altaheim. The rebellious son is the second generation who has forsaken Judaism for social integration. The simple son, the Tam, is the third generation who is totally confused by the, so, by the mixed messages of having religious grandparents and irreligious parents. But the child who cannot even ask, the child who represents the Enio de Alisho, is the fourth generation. For the child of the fourth generation no longer has memories of Jewish life in its full intensity. Our children are children of that fourth generation. Already it is clear that what we took for granted, they do not. They do not take it for granted that they will belong to an Orthodox synagogue or for that matter to any synagogue at all. They do not take it for granted that they will get married or that they will marry another Jew or that they will stay married. They do not take it for granted that they will have Jewish children or that it is important to have children at all. Nothing can be taken for granted in the fourth generation, least of all, living in a secular open society in which even a common moral code seems to be so lacking. That is our generation, my friends the fourth generation, that cannot be sustained just by inherited Judaism. It has to be real. It has to be something that we show our children we're proud of, we're passionate about, something that we're interested in, something that we're excited about. Your six-year-old comes home and tells you, I hate Shabbos, it's because you hate Shabbos. Be real with yourself. Be real, be real with who you are. We were talking last night about a bunch of different things, but something that I forgot to mention you know, I really give Rabbi Billet a tremendous amount of credit for saying this every year. And I didn't appreciate it as much at the time. And as the years go on and I see what's going on with different people's children, I appreciate it even more. He said every year, you decide to send your children to whatever school you and your family thinks is the right choice for them. Okay. Some send to these kinds of schools, others send to those kinds of schools. Whatever decision you have made is a decision you need to stand by and respect. And therefore, he said, if a school has a rule that they have a dress code, whatever that dress code is, and we're not here to judge the dress codes of schools, but whatever school you sign your children up to follow that dress code, you as a parent need to follow the same dress code also. And if you don't, you're showing your children that you have no respect for the education that they're getting. 
how do you expect them to have any respect for it? And he went further, and I think he's correct. It's not just that we need to dress. It's we need to go on vacations that also uphold the standard of our children's dress clothes in their schools. Yes, sometimes it means you're not going to be able to go to the beach in Mexico with the rest of your friends. Maybe that's what it means. But what's more important? Is it more important to us that our children are given an education that they're going to actually respect and be able to uphold because they see their parents respecting it? Or do we care more about having a good time and then we're going to cry later, how did my children end up this way? It's because you don't care about Judaism. Why should your children care about it? What does it mean to you? How proud are you of a Jew, of being a Jew, of sometimes restricting yourself? Yes, it means some places we're not going to be able to take advantage of because there is no kosher food and because the environment is just not kosher for our children and for ourselves. Yes, and for ourselves. It's not kosher for us either. We're so worried about the influences that our children get. What about the influences on ourselves? And if you think it's not going to happen to you, look how many marriages in this neighborhood have broken apart because of things that nobody ever believed would happen to them. And yet it's happening to adults as well. We have to be proud of who we are and what we stand for. And that is the only way that our children will be able to get those values and understand and appreciate what they stand for. And as we say on Hanukkah and on Purim, Al-Hamalchamos, think about those words. Are you willing to fight that Malchama? Are you willing to stand up and be courageous? Are you willing to stand up and say, yes, you know, I asked a question last night. Anybody here, you can be honest, anybody here has difficulty when we read Timcha Zecher Amalek and we say exactly what the expectation is of HaKadosh Baruch Hu of every Jew to be Mocha Zecher Amalek. Right? So it means you have to kill men, women, children. You have to destroy every last remnant of what they represent and who they are. So we all think, yeah, that's not a big deal. Like, of course, Amalek is just Iran. So we'll just drop a bomb and that's going to be the end of Amalek. What if HaKadosh Baruch Hu came to you? Just think about it this way. Give me an extreme example. What if HaKadosh Baruch Hu came to you himself and said, you know what? I'd like you to know somebody donated a kidney and... You were the recipient, and because of that, you had a nice, wonderful, healthy, long life. Well, I want you to know the person who donated the kidney is a member of Amalek. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, I'd like you to go with a gun and kill that person. Yeah, what are you going to do? You don't know, right? Problem. What are you going to do? The answer is we would listen to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The answer is, if the Rebona Shalom told us what to do, we would listen to him, as hard as it is. Are you prepared to say that? Are you prepared to stand up and say, I will listen to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even though it's hard? Yeah. Are you prepared to do that? It's hard. There are many mitzvahs and many experiences that are hard. And yes, something that we spoke about last night um, in our get-together, I said, you know, certain psukim in the Torah make you uncomfortable because it's so countercultural. Yes, it's true. It's countercultural. But the Torah is pretty unequivocal in what it says about things that are a toeva. So what does it mean? So what do we do? What do we do when we live in a society that is so against the values that the Torah tells us to stand for? What do we do? It doesn't mean we don't respect people. Of course, we show respect to every human being. 
But what can we accept as a people, as Jews who follow the values of the Torah? What do we do? If that's something that makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. But then what do you do with that feeling of being uncomfortable? One of the women asked me last night, so what do I tell my child? I said, it's okay to say I don't know the answer. But it's not okay to roll my eyes and say, you know, the Torah is crazy and totally archaic, which is what many of us probably would say. And it's not really speaking to me. And it's not talking to this generation. And it has to be that it was something for the past and not relevant to me today. We cannot say that. We cannot feel that way. That can't be the attitude. We have to be proud of all the values that the Torah stands for, even at times like today, when it's very hard to do that in the face of the modern values that are so antithetical to everything the Torah stands for. But we know that the Torah is enduring and everlasting. And we know that the Torah is here to stay. And we know this is the greatest miracle of all human history. Let me end with a mashal of the Dubna Magid. I see we're almost out of time. Dubna Magid writes about a very simple person who lived in a small town. And he really didn't have an understanding of the outside world. And one day his friends come back from a business trip and they say, you know, we saw something you are not going to believe. We saw that there's a wagon that is able to move and be pulled without horses pulling it. You ever heard of such a thing? And he says, it can't be. What do you mean? The only way we travel is with a horse and buggy. How can it be? They said, I don't know. You have to go to this big city in Leipzig, they have something, never seen it before, it was so amazing. So he saves up all of this money, and for months and months he's talking to his family about he's going to go travel to see this unbelievable sight. And he heard that there's this amazing, miraculous new invention where you're able to have a wagon that moves by itself without any horses pulling it. Can't get over it. And finally, after he saves enough money, he takes the trip out to the bustling city, he asked somebody on the street, do you know where this wagon is that moves by itself? Everybody's looking at him like he fell off another planet. They don't know what he's talking about. He says, I don't know, my friends told me it has wheels on the bottom and it moves and it goes different places. He said, what, the train? He says, I don't know what it's called, but I guess. Okay, the train station is over there, you can go. Well, what do I do when I go to the train station? Well, there are tellers there, you can go speak to somebody there in the train station and they'll explain to you everything you need to know. So he goes, he stands on the platform, and he's looking around, so much commotion. He steps up to the booth, and he asks the individual in the booth, you know, I'd like to buy a ticket. Well, where would you like to go? He says, well, I, I don't know uh, how this works exactly. Well, how much money do you have? Takes out his piggy bank, takes out his wallet, shows all the money he saved. So, obviously it means he wants a first class ticket. So they give him a first class ticket, take all the money, and uh, they tell him that he should stand on the platform, wait for the train to come. Another couple of minutes, the train will be here. And you go take your seat in first class. All right. So he goes, he stands on the platform, he's ready to go. And finally, the train comes. And he sees everyone is pushing and everyone is shoving and everyone's so excited. He shoves along with them and he jumps onto the train. And he's looking around and he sees a big commotion. He's really excited about it. And... Suddenly, the train begins to move. He doesn't know that he's supposed to sit down or hold on to something, so he falls down onto the ground because he's totally shocked by, uh, by the movement of the train. And along a couple of minutes later, everybody starts yelling, oh, Ticketmaster's coming around, the conductor's on his way, everybody hide! So he doesn't know what it means. So he sees everybody's quickly going onto the benches, in the mud, underneath the suitcases, and in the back there were some chickens, and there are people hiding with the chickens in the mud, 
So he too goes and hides under a bench, puts some suitcases on top of himself. The problem is he was very tall. So his legs are sticking out. The ticketmaster comes around. He sees there's nobody there. He notices this individual with his legs sticking out. He starts beating him. And the man says, why are you hitting me? What do you mean, why am I hitting you? Why are you hiding under the suitcases? Obviously, you didn't pay. He said, I didn't pay. What are you talking about? Yeah, show me your ticket. Pulls out his ticket. Shows him he has a first-class ticket. He says, you have a first-class ticket? What are you doing on the floor hiding in the mud under a suitcase? Well, this is my first time here. I don't know what first class is. I don't know what economy class is. I can tell you, somebody started shouting a couple of moments ago that the conductor's coming around and everyone should hide. I thought this is part of the game. I thought this is part of the experience. So I also went to hide. The man says, no, it's because they didn't buy a ticket. That's why they're hiding. You have a first class ticket and you're sitting rolling yourself in the mud with the chickens under the suitcases. Do you know what first class is? They serve you all the food and drinks you can ever imagine. You sit there comfortably and you can lay back on a bed and you're sitting here rolling in the mud with the chickens? So the Dubna Magad said, we don't realize as the Amon as the Jewish people, we have a first class ticket. We've paid a tremendous price over the last 3,000 years to be the people who we are. It's a price that we've paid in every generation The attacks against the Jewish people have made us stronger and have brought us to where we are. And with that tremendous price of Mesiris Nefesh and the heroism of Jews throughout the generations, I mean, I'll be honest, I hope some of you or all of you watched the Leviah from yesterday of those two brothers. Who's not proud to be a Jew when you watch the reaction and response of these parents and these families? They just lost two of their children, innocent young men who had a whole life ahead of them. And yet, calling to the Jewish people to remain calm, not to take revenge, singing Asher Bacharbanu in the middle of the Levaya, thousands of people who are there, and Atta Bechartanu and his Snari Me'afar Kumi, and asking HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he should bring the dust wipe the dust off of the face of the Jewish people, singing the words, Ba'afilu ba'astara, v'vadai nimsa Hashem izbarach. That's the reaction of the Jewish people to such a tragedy. Who's not proud to be a Jew? Who doesn't want to be a part of a nation like that? Who doesn't want to associate and affiliate with people who are that sublime, who care that much, who have such a perspective? We've paid a tremendous price. We have paid a tremendous price over the generations, over the many millennia of Jewish history. And the Dubna Magad warns us to remember, don't hide under the suitcases with the mud, with the chickens. Don't try to shed your Jewish identity and live a meaningless life where you don't really understand the ticket that you're holding, where you don't understand how proud you should be for the person who you are, for the people who we are. Be proud. Say this Purim, Alham al-Khamas with pride. I say to my family, I say to my community, I say to my children, I am proud to uphold the banner of what the Jewish people are fighting for. It's something that our values worth fighting for. It's something that has kept us going as the most miraculous of nations. It's something that no other people can say about themselves. It's something that only we hold on to. And yet so often, 
Instead of holding it with pride, instead of understanding every day what we say, Asher we choose to hide in the mud with the chickens underneath the suitcases, not understanding who we are and what we stand for. Not realizing the pride that we should take in what the Jewish people are all about. And that's what we celebrate on Purim. That there were so many along the years and along the generations who said, let's destroy the Jewish people, but yet here we are. Here we are, we're proud to be here. And here we are, we will continue to be proud for everything that the Jewish people represent, for all that we stand for, and for all that we are in the world. So, Amir Tashem, I hope that this year, 